Hello and welcome to episode 122 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. It's a great pleasure to welcome my guest today, Dr. Msia Kibona-Clark, to the podcast. She is an associate professor in the Department of African Studies at Howard University. Originally born in Tanzania, Dr. Kibona-Clark received her doctorate in African Studies from Howard in 2006. She has published two books, Hip-Hop and Social Change in Africa, Ni Wakati, and recently, Hip-Hop and Social Change in Africa, Prophets of the City and Dusty Foot Philosophers, Ohio University Press. She's also published chapters and articles in journals like Le Cahier d'Etudes Africaines, Journal of Pan-African Studies, African Studies Quarterly. Dr. Clark currently produces the Hip Hop African podcast and blog, which you can find at hiphopafrican.com. A former Fulbright scholar, she is also an accomplished photographer whose work was featured in the book Mfon, Women Photographers in the African Diaspora. Welcome. Thank you, thank you. That was such a great intro. <laughs> So good to have you here, and first time, I think, that we've ever had a fellow podcaster on the podcast. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and how you came to the topic of hip-hop in Africa? Well, I was born in Tanzania, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and grew up in the 80s and 90s in Cleveland, Ohio, and, you know, was part of kind of that hip-hop scene there, and very early on became involved with hip-hop culture as a fan. And so when I did a study abroad in 1996 in Tanzania, you know, the hip-hop scene there was, you know, pretty booming, and it was, you know, fun to kind of get engaged and, and to get involved there. So I became a fan of the hip-hop scene in Tanzania in the mid-'90s. And then kind of fast-forward about 10 or so years after finishing my doctorate, and I, yeah, just, you know, started writing for AllAfrica.com as a fan, um, freelancing and covering, you know, the hip hop artists, interviewing them and started seeing more scholarship, like serious scholarship come out on hip hop in Africa and having friends who were artists kind of, you know, give me that encouragement that I could actually, you know, write academically about the culture that I was already a fan of. And so a personal passion became an integral part of your profession. Yes. Now, you just gave a fascinating talk at the Michigan State African Studies Center's Eye on Africa series on African women in hip-hop culture. And one of the most powerful takeaways for me was the range of women's agency in hip-hop. Uh, for example, you know, the wide range in sort of narratives and lyrics and, and fashion styles, uh, you name it. So can we generalize about what in a woman MC, and I know you don't like uh, qualifying MC in that gendered way, yeah. it's not maybe the most appropriate, but, you know, can we generalize about what a, what a woman MC in Africa is like and maybe how she differs from the typical male MC? Well, I'll say that women MCs are very, very diverse across the continent. And I definitely think that there are some similarities. Each of them have to contend with 
being a woman in a predominantly male, mas very masculine space, in a space that is often hostile to women participating, you know, on their own terms. It's like you can participate, but we'll tell you how you can participate. And so one of the things all women have in common who are involved in hip-hop culture is they are, you know, in these spaces that are hostile to them. And hip-hop is a culture that you can't come into, you know, with with thin-skinned and unsure about yourself. You have to come in with confidence. And so, you know, seeing these women come through, they're, you know, all very strong voices, very strong um, opinions and views. So I think that's, you know, one of the things that they all share. Beyond that, they also differ in terms of the, fo the things that they focus on. But I think collectively, women tend to use kind of a different lens to examine some of the issues that men examine. So, for example, looking at female genital cutting, a lot of men have produced records calling for an end to it. Then you have Sister Fa in Senegal, who's from Casamance, from a village where they practiced it. So it was kind of a whole part of her having this movement. And so it the lens she used was very, very different as a woman from an area that did it, and, and she was able to get her village, I believe, to abolish the practice. So, you know, women speaking on these things, sexual violence, sexual harassment, is coming from a different perspective and a very um, needed addition to the conversation. And you mentioned in the talk how many female artists, although not all, challenge, you know, hip-hop's patriarchy mm -hmm. and, and sexism to a certain extent, also it's, also it's uh, sort of hyper-materialism, but that they do it in a way that somewhat paradoxically also uses those same kind of parameters, mm -hmm. uh, like the miniskirt, for instance, mm -hmm. and um, you know, other fashion styles, and also uh, lyrics uh, about sexual desire, for instance, and, and freedom. How does that work? How can you challenge, in a way, while embracing well, I, I, you know, the women are standing in their truth, and I think it's interesting because all of the women know what the social expectations are. They know the cultural expectations, the cultural norms, gender norms, and for those that make a conscious decision to express themselves in a way that they know goes against those cultural norms is in its own challenging gender norms. And so one of the things that gets tricky is we don't know necessarily are you wearing this miniskirt because you really want to wear the miniskirt or are you wearing it because you, you know, you're trying to start a conversation and, or someone is telling you this is what you should wear. But if you kind of accept that many of these women have agency and are making these decisions on their own, then them making a decision to express their sexuality, whether you feel comfortable with it or not, is in itself a form of um, resistance. I may not feel comfortable with some of it, but I've had to kind of give them that space and not be part of the shaming that often happens um, around women. What kind of shaming are we talking about here? Well, in the talk I gave, I talked about the shaming of the Ghanaian artist, Ms. Bell, who was gang raped. And, you know, the reaction was that she deserved it because of the way that she was dressing. But you also have artists that will say that, okay, because she dresses a certain way or behaves a certain way, she's not a real MC or she's, you know, they won't take her seriously. She won't get any respect. And so there's this idea that, 
women should talk about certain things that are acceptable, especially the idea that women are supposed to be kind of the the keepers of the tradition and are supposed to be conscious and socially aware and not sexualize themselves. And when they do, then they, you know, are not no longer deserving of respect or the title mm-hmm. of MC. And some of these themes are featured in your wonderful new book, Hip Hop in Africa, which I just devoured. It's uh, really a remarkable piece of work, a tour de force. We go from Senegal to Ghana and Nigeria and Tanzania and to South Africa, Botswana, Mozambique, you name it. Uh, I learned an enormous amount from it, so thank you. thank you. And in that first narrative chapter, you say, if all politics is local, as the U.S. Uh, House Speaker uh, who was a Tip O'Neill famously said, then you could also say that this applies to hip hop. Mm-hmm. So to me, the issue of language looms very large in this, in, in the vernacularization of, of hip hop uh, in Africa. So how do African languages, all the way from Arabic to Zulu, uh, fuel hip hop's evolution from its African American form initially to an African form of popular culture, a local one? Well, artists have, you know, one of the the great things about hip-hop is that the kind of key element of hip-hop authenticity is your representation of your experiences, your, you know, what you've seen, how you feel. And so artists are supposed to write their own lyrics. And so when they write their own lyrics, they're, you know, expected to kind of use the language that is local to them, make references to, you know, kind of local culture and incorporate local, you know, vernacular and languages. And so African artists have taken hip-hop and localized it. And even, even when there's rapping in English, they're often using slang words that only someone from that country would know and understand. And in some cases, even within a a country like South Africa, you know, you have Pretoria, um, Johannesburg, Cape Town, each which has their own rap scene. And, you know, there are certain things that you can identify Cape Town hip hop with that, you know, Johannesburg maybe doesn't do. So it's definitely every location has their own way of localizing the hip hop. And language is one of the big ways of doing that. And I should note for the listeners who haven't had the chance to read the book yet that it contains an amazing set of lyrics, the book Mm. itself. Uh, So the voices of the MCs of the artists are very well represented. We get a, an incredibly rich diversity of styles and stories and themes covered. So in a way, this is a global form, uh, hip hop, increasingly global form, and yet it's so dependent on these local languages. Africa has an incredible history, intellectual tradition of the spoken word from the griots of West Africa to the Zimbongi of Southern Africa. Are there other elements of African music, traditional, traditionally strong, you know, modes of African music that find their expression also in hip hop? Yeah, there is, you know, the, the hip hop drum beat, kind of the old school hip hop drum beat 
is in similar many ways to traditional African drum beats. And so you can take the djembe and do a hip hop drum beat with the djembe. So there are a lot of kind of parallels in sound um, between hip hop drum beats and African drum beats, especially from West Africa. And then you also have kind of the call and response that is very common in African music where African music is very participatory. It's, you know, very much the audience getting engaged with, the, you know, the, the artists on stage. And so it's not just someone singing at you. It's kind of a, an, an experience. And so that's the same thing with any hip hop concert you go to. The audience is always kind of called to participate. You know, a lot of that is very similar to traditions, music traditions that we find in Africa. Now you've covered hip-hop across the African continent and all its richness and, and diversity. Which one is your favorite? Uh, do you like you know, the more commercial hip-hop or do you like the one with sort of political messages and social critiques? Uh, do you like uh, certain countries' uh, hip-hop or better than others? Putting you on the spot here mm -hmm. because you know you you are an expert and we all have our preferences and no, you're not going to make any <laughs> listeners angry I'm sure but what are what are some of the most uh, amazing examples that that really resonate with you? Well, as a Tanzanian, I definitely have to say I, I love the Tanzanian hip hop scene, but in terms of especially in terms of the topic of women. South African women artists right now are really doing a lot. Um, you have Yugen Blackrock, who was on the Black Panther soundtrack. Kanye Mavi, who's on the cover of the book, who raps in Gosa. Um, Gigi Lemayne, who's based out of Johannesburg. All very different, very different stylistically, but very strong voices. And so I'm always very excited and giddy when I hear strong female voices just coming through the mic and you know, just kind of being unapologetic and saying their piece without kind of worrying about who likes it or not. Um, in Ghana, there's a rising artist, Abina Rockstar, who, who raps in Tree, and she's just, you know, in person, is very little person, but has this big voice. And so I'm always, you know, amazed. I was amazed when I first met her. So, yeah, I mean, and in Ghana, there are several artists. Uh, Manifest is probably, you know, I always refer to him as an intellectual MC. He's came to the U.S., got his degree, but he is he's an intellectual. He comes from a family of intellectuals. His aunt is the director of the Institute for African Studies at the University of Ghana. So he kind of grew up in academia, uh, so that is reflected in his music. Blitz, the ambassador, who was based in New York but from Ghana, often reminds me of who Fela might be if he was a hip-hop artist in terms of his blending of he uses a lot of live instruments a lot of jazz instrumentals and drumming and uh, so yeah there are quite a few artists that I'm a fan of and that's one of the great things about doing the research to be able to you know talk to people and research things that you're a fan of yeah well, as someone who has been working on soccer in Africa for a long mm -hmm. time, um, I sympathize yeah. <laughs> with that a great deal. What are they like when you meet them? Because I know when mm -hmm. I meet soccer players, I'm often surprised mm -hmm. by what they sound like and how they interact outside of their performative space, uh, usually in a positive mm -hmm. sense. Um, but what are they like as, as, as people outside of their art? It's interesting because some I've actually become friends with. So like Kanye Mavi on the cover, we actually 
became really good friends. And part of it was, you know, she had me come to her house in the township in Guguletu, and she gave me directions. I got lost. And I was in the middle of a township. There was nothing that I could kind of pinpoint but a gas station. And I called her and gave the phone to the attendant. And she basically was like, oh, the part of town you were in, that's, that's rough. I'm surprised that no one tried to rob you. And she thought it was very, very funny. Here's this academic coming to the township. Literally, I rented a car, had a GPS, and was like, I'm going to find, had never been to, the, to this specific part of Cape Town ever. And so I think my, you know, lack of kind of freaking out and needing to be, you know, it helped. And so we, you know, were able to talk and, you know, became good friends. There are other artists that are probably, hmm, there are some artists that I'm surprised that, that, are, that are not as, I'm going to say welcoming, hmm, I'll say this. I do have a, a, my kind of approach to artists is to treat them all as if they're a really big deal. So whether it's an artist that has, you know, never released an album to an artist like Bliss the Ambassador, who's, you know, kind of a megastar, I'm always kind of really respectful of time and treating them that way, that they're, you know, a big deal. So, but some artists kind of let you know that they're, you know, they kind of come with, their ego doesn't fit quite in the room. Um, so it was always interesting. It's always interesting. And then as a woman, I often get challenged by male mm. artists in terms of my knowledge of hip hop. Mm. And so getting into the questioning and talking about their music and kind of giving them, you know, they're able to see that I'm part of the culture. I'm a fan of the culture. And so that kind of gives me a little bit of respect. So, yeah, but it's always, it's been, it's definitely been interesting. It's been it, lots of interesting stories. And do you find that African artists are more accessible than, say, American ones? Yes, very, uh, very much more accessible. Once you kind of make an in with someone in the hip hop scene, they then make phone calls for you. And they'll say, hey, there's someone here, you know, you should meet her, you should talk to her. So one of the artists that I did not think was going to be so accessible, um, One Love the Kubalor is a Ghanaian artist, and he's, you know, kind of popular in Europe and has done quite a bit. He did a, a Vogue, Italian Vogue spread and everything. He's very, but it's very down to earth and very relatable, and it just happened. I knew someone who knew him, and they said, hey, she's coming to town. And he was like, yeah, you know, come on over and let's chat. And so it's helpful when you have a contact that knows people. And same thing with Senegal. Like, so many of the artists there, it was because actually the guys who, Nomadic Wax, who did the mm. film, Democracy in Dakar, uh, Ben and McGee, I told them I was going to Senegal back in 09. And they were like, call KT, call whom I hear their numbers. And I called and was like, yeah, Ben gave me your number. And they were like, yeah, come on through. So it helps. So no intermediaries, no PR people, marketing people, and other folks mm. to, to guard the gate. Well, no. But I will say some artists are hard to get. Like Kanan, I there are so many layers to getting to Kanan. And now he's kind of in seclusion a bit. So it's um, especially since now he's signed to a major label. I don't even know how to operate in that system. So it's been really tough getting anyone who would give me any answer on getting in touch with him. Others, it, like Bliss the Ambassador, you can get in touch with his people, 
But getting them to actually commit to a time because of their schedules is sometimes difficult. So sometimes when the artists, you know, like uh, Blissy Ambassador Manifest was a little bit difficult. When they get a little bigger in their career, there's usually another layer that you have to go to. But if you can make friends with that person in the middle, <laughs> they can book you an appointment. So. And it's nice to see how your personal relationships and your, you know, professional ethics dovetail with your podcast project. And when you and I first met at the African Studies Association a couple of years ago in Washington, D.C., you had just started mm -hmm. your hip hop African podcast. Now you're 34 episodes okay. in. The podcast is very successful. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your experience as a podcaster and also how the podcast and the blog, which is related to it and where so many of us learn about these wonderful artists, fit into your overall work as an academic? Well, first I want to say that time at ASA, I felt like such a fangirl because I was like, oh, I didn't want to, you know, kind of hover. Um, but I'm like looking at the equipment. I'm like, you know, just... Being seeing you guys there was really such a thrill, and I think the friend who was with me was just kind of bored and wanted to go. And I'm like, no, but you don't understand. So I was really, you know, happy that you were down to earth because um, that was great. I had been listening to your podcast for several years, and um, so it was great seeing you guys there doing your thing. We right were doing ASA. a whole series for yeah. the ASA. That's right, locked down in a room in the mm -hmm. basement. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So starting off, the, the blog and podcast really both started as as a, as a form of pedagogy. I used it in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So the blog was having students find an artist, you know, either find a socially conscious artist or a woman artist or what have you from Africa and do a 300-word blog post. And so that is how I found probably 60, 70% of the artists that I ended up finding for the book was because of the students. And so like Dope St. Jude, the queer artist out of Cape Town, one of my students found her in 2015. And I was like, oh, wow. And like, I was just so amazed. And then I was able to get to Cape Town and talk to her. So most of the artists in the book I found through the students. And then I was always a fan of podcasts, prefer podcasts to the radio. Um, yeah, I barely listen to the radio. So at some point, I saw something somewhere, a, a professor who used podcasts, had students do podcasts. So it started off with students doing podcasts for their final project. And then I was like, well, why don't I do these interviews that I'm doing because I'm having these great conversations with people. It would be great to have that, you know. So then I started doing research on the equipment and watching lots of YouTube videos. And, yeah, still, still, still learning. There's still a lot I'm learning. But. We're always learning. That's one yeah. of the fun things about it, actually. Mm -hmm. So when your colleagues look at you and say, oh, you're still doing that podcast? Or, you know, you submit your annual review materials mm -hmm. and there's maybe an older colleague who doesn't understand uh, the format. Mm -hmm. um, well, how do you deal with those who question, perhaps, the amount of time mm -hmm. and labor that goes into producing these podcasts? How do they fit, say, in your academic portfolio? How do you, yeah. uh, I hate to use this word, I do it myself, justify it mm -hmm. to those who are skeptical? 
Well, I well all of the episodes are themed around you know certain social issues. So it's not just oh you know tell me the top artists you listen to or you know um, who are you dating. So it's you know looking at language choice. What makes you choose one language over another? You know what are your views on Pan Africanism and you know what are your views on views on women in hip hop? So they're always substantive discussions, and so that has helped. And also kind of from the beginning, having it be, you know, the Hip Hop African podcast out of the Department of African Studies at Howard University. So it's from the beginning been tied to, and so it definitely, in that sense, brings the department to, you know, a different platform. Uh, so it's not just my podcast. It's, you know, always, this is the department's podcast, and that's why I should get a graduate assistant. Um, <laughs> so it's always kind of doing that. And then with the class, the Hip Hop in Africa class became a really popular class, and now we're actually... I'm co-teaching it with GW, George Washington University. Mm -hmm. So the Howard and George Washington students take the class together once a week it meets. And so that has kind of, it's all really part of this master plan to kind of establish kind of African hip hop studies at Howard. Something like what Harvard has done for hip hop, their hip hop archive, which has been around for a while. They have fellowships and artists and residencies. So in the future, I'm definitely looking kind of to build more blocks in order to, you know, kind of justify the university supporting putting more resources in. Well, that's, you know, good luck with that amazing <laughs> vision. I love it. Um, do you have advice for other enterprising uh, scholars, but, but even non-specialists who might want to be getting into podcasting, knowing now uh, what maybe you didn't know when you got into it early on? If you're getting into it for money, <laughs> don't. You have to be passionate. Um, one of the things, you know, our podcast, of course, is free. Um, the site, I basically pay for. I'm kind of negotiating with my department to see if they'll pay for the site. The equipment I bought, you know, I, there's no ads in it. And we don't take we've, – we've been asked to take – uh, ads, but also solicited um, posts like PR people who want to post, and we have said, "Look, if you're mm. if you have something that's good, send it in, and if we like it, we'll post it." But we can't, you know, because I'm also worried about the artists in terms of the money. If I start making money from this, uh, also at the same time, it takes a while to even get to the point where you're making enough money to make this a full time job or to make it. Lucrative. So if you're getting into it for that, don't. But I definitely feel like if you have something you're passionate about and that you can talk about any time all day, then that's something that is really worth going after, especially if you don't see it already out there. So if you already are seeing someone else is doing it, then you have to come in from a different angle. But if it's something that you love talking about and you have a passion for, yeah, I mean, there's definitely room for more podcasts, especially in terms of Africa-related material. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it is time-consuming, mm. and as you suggest, there's a lot of strategizing that needs to go into it. I have to tell you the honest truth, I didn't really think about this much when we started with mm. Peter Lim 
mm -hmm. uh, 11 years ago. But certainly now, looking back, we made a lot of mistakes, but we grew from those. And one of the things that we learned was really that planning uh, was very important. So when you, for example, go to conferences now or mm -hmm. you go to Tanzania or to South Africa, do you go already knowing that you're going to be interviewing somebody? Is that already part of your mission in addition to maybe writing an article or parts of, the, of a book project? Yes, yes, yes. I'm, wherever I'm going, I, well, I bring my equipment with me. And I've already, I try as much as possible to try to, you know, reach out to folks to see if they're going to be in town and see if they'll be available. For ASA and for other conferences, I look at the, the schedule to see who's presenting on hip hop, who has, you know, something related, and then try to reach out to them to do, a, you know, an interview. Books that come out, you know, the same thing. I'm trying to, you know, connect with folks that way. But yeah, whenever I'm, I travel anywhere in Africa, especially, it's trying to figure out, okay, well, who's there? Who can I interview? That's great. Well, uh, to quote Blitz, the ambassador <laughs> from your book, uh, you've, you've done a great job of giving us uh, insight on the world's plural of hip hop in Africa. Uh, so I quote, people of African descent are getting their voices heard. We're speaking for ourselves so we can tell our stories. So thank you very much for joining us on Africa Past and Present. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>